Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Before we jump in, I'm always keen to hear from our listeners and my inbox is open to you. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. Right, let's get into it. This is the second of four episodes in a mini-series that talks about innovation in local news. Increasingly, we're hearing that the US is a great source of inspiration for UK newsrooms when it comes to news gathering processes, revenue models, audience engagement, and so on. In each episode, I will speak to US local newsrooms about something smart or experimental that they're doing in an effort to transfer lessons and learnings across to newsrooms anywhere. Next up is the local news organisation Seattle Times, and I'm joined by two core members of their successful crowdfunding and philanthropic initiatives. That's Katie Erwer, the Senior Vice President of Product, Marketing and Public Service, and Kristen Dazon, the Director of Development and Community-Funded Journalism. Today, we are talking about three of their initiatives which are backed by both the average reader as well as wealthy philanthropic groups. We'll be talking more about how this is keeping the newsroom staffed and by virtue their journalism funded at a tough time for job security in journalism. All of this is pulled into context by conversations we're having in the UK, where philanthropic funding continues to be seen as a way to fund high-quality public interest journalism, but we currently lack the culture and framework to make this possible. If nothing else, we learn today about the difference this is making in the US, as well as the challenges and pitfalls to bear in mind. All of that's coming up after this. Just a quick one, our Digital Journalism Conference News Rewired is back for four days of expert panels and workshops to help your newsroom grow your audience and create new revenue. We've been hard at work booking lots of exciting speakers and those talks start from the 19th of October. Don't miss out, you can book your ticket on newsrewired.com and we'll see you there. Katie, Kristen, welcome both to the journalism.co.uk podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Um, Katie, let me come to you first. What's the working situation like for yourself at the moment? Well, I am at home with my seven-year-old and nine-year-old and a dog that we adopted during the pandemic. Uh, So we got a full house as we moved out of the office and very early. We were one of the first U.S. epicenters of the pandemic. And so we moved quickly um, to 100% remote. Uh, So things are good. We've adjusted quickly. And I'm really proud of both the organization and Kristen and I and our quickness and sort of pivoting and and taking our roles 100% virtual. Cool. Kristen, how are you finding working from home? Working from home has been um, fun. It's been an adjustment. uh, But I think like a lot of people, I do miss my colleagues. I miss that in-person collaboration. And uh, and it's it's also fun just to sort of see, um, you know, you see people's families, their pets, um, and a little bit of their lives. But um, I look forward to the day when we can see them in person. Katie, today we're going to talk a lot about the various crowdfunding and uh, philanthropic um, funding models that you're working on at Seattle Times. Um, in the UK, we kind of look with jealousy to the US and the culture of philanthropy that you seem to enjoy in local news. As a, as a general broader question, how important is philanthropy to the Seattle Times? I think it's becoming increasingly more important. About 10% of our newsroom staff is currently funded by community funding. Um, so that is not a small or insignificant portion. We have been able to grow our staff this past year um, through some philanthropic efforts. Uh, which I think has been really inspiring and exciting for the newsroom. Um, We have long been in a place where we've either held staffing flat and in many cases had to reduce staffing. 
So getting to a place where we are actually proactively expanding our newsroom to serve reader needs, as well as the aspirations of our journalists is I think really, really energizing. Yeah. An important part of this conversation, of course, is throughout the last year, we've seen a lot of job layoffs, a lot of job redundancies in the industry itself. How has it actually been at Seattle Times in that respect? Yeah, that's a great question. That has really been, I think, devastating to watch newsrooms shrink across across the country here in the U.S. Um, we fortunately have not been in that position. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we were one of the first U.S. epicenters of the pandemic. Um, so uh, we felt the effects in terms of the advertising losses and the impact to local businesses much more quickly than some other areas. So we did contract resources. We went to reduced schedules. Um, we didn't lay off journalists during this period, um, but we did move to reduced hours for about three months. Uh, journalists in our newsroom um, took a day off each of those months unpaid, really just to sort of contract and, and save resources. Uh, but we we were fortunate that we didn't have to let anybody go. And do you know roughly kind of what percentage of your income as a company comes from philanthropic funding and crowdfunding? Um, it's about 10% of our revenue. Um, the majority of our revenues, about 70% of our total company revenue actually comes from subscriptions. So while it's not uh, philanthropy, it is still community funded and the individual subscribers actually keep us going and keep our newsroom sizable and robust. Katie, something you'll know like the like the back of your hand is your investigative journalism fund, which we took a look at in 2019. Um, can you bring me up to speed and, and on, on the kind of work that that's been up to over the last two years? Sure. The Investigative Journalism Fund really was an experiment. Um, you know, we had had great success in the philanthropic world with corporate entities and, you know, community foundations or family foundations. Um, we had not really gone to grassroots fundraising in the ways that others have successfully done. Um, so the Investigative Journalism Fund was meant to do that, to empower us to tap individual donors and philanthropists to contribute to our journalism in a little bit different way. So it has been quite successful. I know when we had discussed this with you the last time, we talked about the phases that had been set up. Um, we'd initially outlined three phases um, that would essentially at the time, um, you know, in $500,000 increments, unlock additional staffing so that we could realize the benefit of that journalism as quickly as possible. So we've hired six staffers as a result of those efforts. Um, kind of in various roles, um, we have a, um, you know, developing or an emerging investigative reporter to a very seasoned senior investigative reporter. We have a digital analyst. We have a um, engagement person. So the roles are really meant to provide this very fully fleshed out team that can make the most of our investigative reporting. And most importantly, create a significant impact within our community. Super. And and today, I think it's $1.6 million you've raised through that fund, right? That's right. Yeah, a little over $1.6 million, um, which has been really, I think, energizing and exciting. One of the pieces that's most important about that team is um, the collaboration with beat reporters or individual reporters and other coverage areas. So some of the work that we've done um, you know, it is not traditional investigative reporting of sort of one reporter sequestered away, filing through um, records and things like that. It really is um, the product of strong collaboration and expanding investigative skills throughout our newsroom. And we're really proud of the work that's been done. Our 
editor has been a longtime um, employee. He has great working relationships across disciplines and our community is better and stronger served as a result of it, uh, surfacing some really powerful investigations that I think have really, you know, driven some strong impact. Like what? Can you give me some good examples of the of the tangible stories that have come out of it? Sure, absolutely. So um, one is the Hanford nuclear plant um, has had, you know, a litany of problems here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there was some deep reporting that we did on um, respirators, faulty respirators that were actually provided to the employees that worked in those areas. Um, we did a deep investigation of a local, um, very notable high profile chef who had had some pretty strong allegations of sexual misconduct against him. Again, that is one of those examples of that sort of collaboration. Kristen, what would you add in terms of other investigations that have been significant? I think you've captured quite a few of them. I mean, I think there's definitely been a lot of work on the police accountability front. Um, and um, we had, uh, you know, sort of a high profile case here where an individual was killed while in police custody after um, sort of a chokehold and being hooded and so forth. And um, that has been a case that our team investigated really over the course of a year and um, found, you know, serious uh, police, uh, you know, shortcomings and misconduct in including the investigation after. And really our reporting um, did lead to um, the attorney general in this state filing charges against some of the officers, which is um, fairly rare. So it's a powerful um, result. Casey, how permanent do you think this uh, investigative journalism fund will be? I think, I think permanent. Um, it really has proven to be a valuable way to not just engage readers, um, you know, the opportunity for them to show additional support to us and the value that they place on journalism. Um, but it is, I mean, it is materializing investigative journalism that's changing our community. So we have every intention of continuing, you know, a rolling fund that will perpetuate um, to keep those staffers here um, and to continue to grow it. Okay, let's talk about why this matters, especially to the UK. In 2019, the Cairn Cross Review was published, which was an independent report into the sustainable future for high quality journalism in the UK. And that included an overview of the challenges it faces, as well as a number of recommendations to help secure its future. The author, Dame Frances Cairncross, wrote about how the Americans have a tradition as well as a tax system that rewards philanthropic donations to public interest news outlets. Donations to initiatives like the Seattle Times Investigative Journalism Fund are tax deductible because it's run by the non-profit community foundation, Seattle Foundation. The UK does not really have such a culture owing to immense difficulties for British news organisations to gain the necessary charity status and by virtue gaining tax exemption. The report cited community level organisations like the Bristol Cable and the Ferret as those which have said charitable status would be transformative in attracting sizeable philanthropic pounds to support their work. As such, Cancross proposed at the time that public interest journalism should receive tax relief in one form or another. But the government responded by saying, quote, that the current Charities Act system accommodates appropriate options for public interest news. It is completely possible for news organisations to register as a charity under existing UK law. It's just very rigorous. What holds most back are their commercial endeavours and political standpoints where, and here's the tricky part, it cannot, quote, advocate to secure or oppose a change in law, government policy or decisions. 
But there is some precedent here. The conversation and online news and analysis commentary website with articles written by the academic and research community and the Burn Grieve Messenger, an independent community newspaper in Sheffield, are both registered as charities. And organisations can also set up their own separate charitable foundations to attract philanthropic donations. Only this year, Presspad, a company which organises journalism placement mentorships in the UK, created their own charitable foundation and their first donor was the Archwell Foundation, the non-profit created by Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. More recent reports this year from the Public Interest News Foundation have only banged the drum louder, recommending that policymakers and philanthropists in the UK support initiatives to transfer learning from the US non-profit news sector. But the concept of what qualifies as a charity will change over time, and this conversation is one that continues to gain speed and prominence. So I asked Kristen, what exactly is it about America which has created such a thriving culture of philanthropy? I think it's absolutely growing, and I think more and more newsrooms across the country are seeing the value in having um, sort of another revenue source that is sustainable. Um, um, and it's certainly something that we have been um, doing for 10 years now. So um, we may be sort of the old kid on the block in a certain sense, um, but it's great to see so many um, journalism organizations dipping their toes in. And in just one example of that, we helped teach a uh, journalism philanthropy cohort um, in the past year with the local media association that involved um, 16 publishers um, of news organizations across the country. And that uh, six month cohort and, you know, with a few months tail after that, in that period, um, raised almost $5 million, um, which is really incredible to go sort of from zero for most of these organizations to, you know, bringing in some, some dollars that really fund journalists, fund projects, fund um, core and critical work. People understand that the um, world of journalism has been contracting, right? We've lost an enormous number of actual, you know, bodies, reporters who bring um, that journalism. We have what people would call news deserts in so many places. Um, you know, many places in America that used to have a small local newspaper no longer do. And so a lot of communities really lack um, that local coverage and accountability. And I think, um, you know, people crave that. And they also see at a national level that um, there needs to be accountability of our government and public institutions. So I think that um, funders are becoming more, uh, more and more aware of that importance and realizing that they can make a difference by really investing um, in good journalism. So I think that we will see, um, you know, more activity there um, as this conversation really grows and people really see that intersection and why it matters. So, I mean, it's, it's a mixture of like everyday reader donations as well as philanthropic people coming with, with the larger sums of money, right? How, how does that come about? Do you have to outreach to specific philanthropists or do they come directly to you? How does that work? It's a mix of both. Um, we have, uh, I should be very transparent, we have an extremely philanthropically minded community. And I do think that that has created and drives a lot of our success. So I do think that that is a, a huge contributing factor. We also have a very sizable newsroom for a market of our size um, that is deeply committed to journalism. You know, we have low subscriber churn 
those people see an enormous amount of value in local journalism, which inspires giving. They want to, in addition to paying for their subscription, identify ways that they can continue to support our work. So we have messaging that accompanies the stories that run in print and online, um, encouraging people, if you find value in that reporting, to donate. Um, we have marketing campaigns that run in print and digitally surfacing the fund and creating awareness around it. And then we do actual direct outreach in terms of major donors and engaging philanthropists for their support. So we deploy a lot of tactics to engage people and inspire them to, you know, participate and contribute to the fund. You know, we receive all levels of, of contributions from, you know, very significant six-figure contributions to $6. I, I, I am not exaggerating. Um, and Kristen does a really excellent job of connecting with those donors and asking what's inspired your contribution. And over and over and over, we hear, you know, supporting local journalism is so important. Mm. Um, Kristen, what what's harder? Getting your average readers to fork out their hard-earned money or getting the philanthropist to, to come up with the big sums of money? <laughs> That's such a good question. You know, it's it's funny. I mean, I think that um, in some ways it's probably easier for um, readers to be inspired. Um, you know, they read something that moves them or they, they think, wow, they surfaced something important. We should have more reporting like this. And someone may open their wallet and literally just give us $5. Someone else in that grassroots sphere might give us $20 a month um, and, and sort of do ongoing support. So it really is quite a range. Um, I think with, uh, you know, the world of philanthropy, that is, it's more competitive in general, right? Um, if you're seeking a grant, um, and there's probably less philanthropy that is sort of specific to supporting media organizations, so you really have to find um, often the subject matter that that really resonates with funders um, and that they want to um, sort of connect with. Yeah. Is, is that always their motive? I know you have a lot of these day to day conversations with philanthropists. What are their what are their motives for wanting to support these kind of um, schemes and, and how do you pay attention to that? It's definitely an interest in the vigorous reporting that really is important to having um, a democracy, a functioning democracy that's really foundational. So I think a lot of them come at it from that very broad perspective. But then I think other funders come at it from um, a more specific area of interest. We recently um, started some work with a funder called Balmer Group, and they are investing almost uh, $1.2 million um, to do a two-year mental health project with us. Um, they really felt that, that the pandemic made it very clear that um, mental health needs and resources needed to be elevated and brought to the attention of a lot of people, how to navigate that, where you can get help, um, and, you know, really sort of critical things um, for people today. And so that's something that, that they really care about um, as a funder and want to invest in. You know, other funders are deeply connected to um, education or racial equity or, um, you know, sort of emerging uh, community voices. So there's quite um, a wide area of of things that funders are interested in from sort of local regional funders to to national ones. And that one with the Bulmer Group, was that one you had to go out proactively to find? Or did they come to you with that, that, that initial seed, that, that idea? Yeah, we were in the fortunate position that they came to us. They really sort of saw our work and our track record 
they were aware of um, our ongoing work in education lab. And um, they reached out to us for some initial conversations and said, hey, we really think this is important. Is this something that you know, we th you think we could work together on? Um, so yeah, sometimes uh, you're really lucky and it, it you know, kind of comes, comes to you. And Katie, that's the, that's the scheme that's slated to come in September, right? And that, that'll fund four reporters, is that correct? That's right. It funds four uh, journalism positions. There's two reporters, an engagement editor, uh, which is a, a person who does outreach and is responsible for digital distribution of that coverage and making sure that we have a diverse set of voices represented, um, and then an editor specifically of that coverage. Um, mental health is sort of an interesting one um, as we embark on that coverage. You know, it really does create a, it is topically one that requires a very deft hand. It has some very complicated, complex intersection of issues, um, much like uh, homelessness, which we have a similar structure in terms of our approach of coverage. Um, again, it requires very deep expertise and nuance in terms of the reporting to ensure that you do that in an equitable, inclusive and I think way that really helps move the conversations forward. Seattle Times has also recently received $1 million from Microsoft Philanthropies, which will fund three reporters over three years to expand local coverage. That includes a business reporter dedicated to the economic recovery of Seattle during and after the coronavirus pandemic, a political reporter to monitor how policies play out beyond the city council, but really look into the impact they have in neighbourhoods, and also a graphics reporter to create compelling visuals to explain local data and break down the numbers. This all sounds great, doesn't it? It's essentially free money to keep your newsroom running and sustain your coverage. But surely, it isn't all sunshine and rainbows, is it? It is certainly not all rainbows and unicorns. We are very fortunate and we live in a community that really cares about and values journalism. And we've had great success in engaging very generous donors that understand that intersection of journalism and democracy. But no, it is it is very challenging work. Um, it is, uh, I, I have made the joke um, that, you know, I have fundraising on my to-do list three times because you can cross it out, but it is never off of your to-do list. You always have more work to do. So if, um, you know, you're a type A person like me that likes to sort of check things off and have the gratification of a completed project. You know, funding is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And Kristen and her vast experience in philanthropy reminds me of that often of, um, you know, there's always someone to email a thank you to. There is someone, always someone to acknowledge for their engagement or feedback or contribution. There's always a new piece of journalism to surface and showcase, and there is always outreach to do in terms of the next person on the list that you'd like to engage and have their support. So it is daunting and challenging, but I will say there are those little moments um, when we had the opportunity to hire two more people this year to the investigative team where you feel like it materializes, it pays off, and the community is better served for the work that is being done by the journalists in the room, that you can feel that sense of gratification and fuel that next item on the to-do list, which is continuing to do fundraising work. Kristen, what would you add? Yeah, I was going to ask anything to add to that. I think uh, Katie captured that really well. I mean, I think 
you know, the only other thing I would say is that um, funding can be very cyclical. So just because you have a funder now doesn't mean that they will always be a funder, right? They may have a business downturn or they may have interests that pivot or shift elsewhere. Um, so, you know, there is that need to sort of um, constantly replenish the funding and make sure that, that what you're doing is sustainable. Um, I think the brilliant thing about this is that you make the ask. And if people say no, that you haven't lost anything, right? You really only have sort of gain and upside by asking um, and by um, kind of opening the door to that relationship. So, you know, I encourage people who are looking at this to, um, you know, really be fearless. I think that that's, you'll see that once you sort of start making that ask, um, you're surprised at how much people are willing to respond and how they will open other doors for you. Any other kind of stresses or pressures that come with running these initiatives that people might not expect? You know, we do um, report back to our funders. Um, so we, you know, for many of our projects, we provide uh, written quarterly reports or we do in-person meetings. And um, sometimes we have the project editors present at those. And it's not something that uh, a skill that journalists, you know, traditionally had to have um, interacting with funders or, um, you know, presenting our, our results and impacts. Um, so that is something that's maybe um, a little bit different, um, but I think it, it's sort of a great thing to add to their skill set and really just um, sort of broadens um, their, you know, their work and their portfolio. Yeah, I think that we should really kind of take that head on as part of this conversation, that there is this um, intersection of people that are very powerful and influential in the community are often the folks that come forward to provide funding for these initiatives. And I, I do think that there is a line in the sand and our publisher has that of, you know, we will not um, compromise our journalistic integrity because of a funder and we will lose funders as a result. And we have lost funders as a result of our journalism in terms of um, things that have either been close to them or about them. Uh, so I do think that that is a really critical and important part we are not influenced um, by those funders in ways that would ever compromise our journalism. Can you can you be more specific about that example? Well, there was a few years ago we did an investigation, um, and there was an individual that was tangentially involved in that investigation um, who was outraged by the coverage and was significantly personally impacted. And we decided to part ways with that funder. Um, there was no way for us to continue to move forward, and we wouldn't. Um, retract or backtrack on that story or that piece of journalism. Um, and unfortunately, as a consequence of that, that person, that group is no longer a contributing funder to our journalism. Interesting. Does that come up early in conversations, like when you're having early agreements with funders to say, you know, this is all well and good, but this does not change where we stand, you know, journalistically? Absolutely. I would say that is the number one question that we get, both from external entities that are potentially becoming funders to understand what are those parameters, what are those guidelines, what are the, um, you know, where do we exist comfor comfortably in terms of the relationship and the collaboration with the funder. And I would say it is the number one question that we get from other organizations that are potentially embarking on community-funded journalism. How do you maintain your editorial independence? So I do think that for anybody that is going to potentially um, embrace community funding as an option for your journalism, having a very specific structure of what that actually looks like 
Funders don't see stories in advance. They don't know what topics we're going to cover. They have broad understanding of themes. But as Kristen alluded to, we review sort of retrospectively. They don't have any idea what it is that we're actually going to be digging into. And they don't have any different access to our reporters than any average reader would have. And they do, as Kristen mentioned, we do meet with our editing team with our funders, but that's the extent of the opportunity uh, for them to collaborate closely with our journalists. Strong advice, really strong advice. Kristen, what else goes in those ongoing conversations with um, philanthropists as, as you move forward throughout the, you know, the course of that funding? What else do you, what else comes up in conversation? You know, often it's sort of um, really trying to understand what a funder is interested in a broad sense. There, you know, there are other interests, um, what moves them, and really um, trying to just keep them abreast of our work. You know, we don't expect that every story that we publish is read by all of our funders. So, you know, it's surfacing some of the strong work. Um, and, you know, if, if someone has a particular interest, really making sure that we're sharing or showcasing those topics for them, those um those stories. Uh, so I think that that's what is, you know, really important is just sort of like the, the stakeholding of, of, you know, being in that relationship, having that sort of two-way conversation and two-way door and, and communicating regularly. Yeah. Katie, if you've got funding for something over two or three years, when do you start thinking about what happens after those two or three years? Pretty much immediately as soon as that project launches. <laughs> as Kristen mentioned, we'll launch the mental health projects uh, funded by the Balmer Group in, uh, you know, sort of mid-September. And we are already thinking about and discussing what do we do after that two-year period. Our intention is never to sunset these initiatives unless they have run their course. But the truth is, is that they're topically things that are intractable problems that we'll continue to make progress on, but will never be solved. So we start talking about and thinking about funding for the next initiative. How do we backfill? How do we diversify funding to ensure that we can perpetuate this coverage as long as the community needs it? I asked Katie and Kristen what they've learned the most throughout their crowdfunding and philanthropic efforts to date. The highlights include that people will surprise you if you simply ask them and give them a way to pitch in but also to bite off what you can chew. Seattle Times can now fetch million-dollar milestones, but it wasn't always this way. So you could start with a smaller, fixed-term initiative with specific local donors. It could fund one reporter salary, or it can be less defined than that. Expect things to be a little bit chaotic in the beginning, and eventually the process becomes smoother and more structured as you reflect on what you've learned. I think the way that Kristen handles and communicates the accountability back, what their money is going to and what it is doing, I think that we have that very well in hand. I think um, even right from the outset of our predecessors who had set this up, I think that was a very key priority and we've done that very, very well. You know, where we continue to evolve is individual donor management and identifying and scaling your efforts commensurate with where the dollars are. Um, streamlining processes and stakeholding for when you have, you know, not a couple of dozen funders, but you have many, many, many more than that, <laughs> and identifying how you continue to do that in a real, uh, authentic and personal way uh, that's manageable and scalable. Awesome. Katie, what would you say is the number one thing people need to know about replicating this elsewhere? I would say, and this will sound probably a little obvious, but stay rooted in your community. 
identify the topical area that is of most importance in serving your community. What will people engage with? And I think that that really makes a very, very significant difference in terms of both the engagement, um, the value for your journalism in terms of driving impact, and the value that you provide to funders. There is that sweet spot where there is sort of magic that happens. Um, we're hopeful that mental health will be that. Ultimately, you'll have that gratification of making a difference in the community. Kristen, let me ask you the same thing. Really being attuned to and listening to your community. And that that means sort of actively um, meeting with people and really asking um, them, you know, community leaders um, and, and people who are really in touch with what's going on, what matters, um, what's changing for them, what things um, are they interested in, and what can we, um, as you know, the local newspaper, what can we do better? Seeking that feedback um, as well, I think is really important and, and improves our work. Katie, I'm going to come to you first. What would you say is your top skill that has fared you well during your career and to and to really do your job day to day? I would say I am a very strong collaborator. I do think that the importance of, and particularly in a funding role, but I also have responsibility for marketing and product. And I think in all of those instances, having the ability to collaborate closely with our newsroom, to understand how journalists do their work and what they're driven by so that you can effectively represent that to funders and potential funders. How do you become a better collaborator? One tip. I think bring something to the table. Um, as a business person, I think it's very easy to come and demand things. We want more coverage. We want you to do this. We want you to do these things. And identifying something that you can bring to the table, whether that's a piece of data that's helpful, whether it's a contact that's helpful, a resource, something that you come to the table to say, I'm a partner in this and I share in your success and we will accomplish more if we go together. I think that that has helped to build the bridge and the confidence with the newsroom in ways that has really accelerated the collaboration and the ways that we come together specifically around funding. They trust that Kristen and I have their best interest and that we are not going to do something with a funder that's going to compromise their journalism or their ethics in ways that they would be uncomfortable with. Awesome piece of advice. Uh, Kristen, you know what's coming. What's the one school you need to do your day-to-day -day job? I mean, the other thing I would add is definitely communication, right? So um, whether that's sort of written um, emails to contributors, whether it's reports um, or whether it's in person um, or, you know, having a phone conversation with someone, but I think communication skills are really um, critical in this role as well. One thing you do to in your job to become a better communicator, what is it? Taking lessons from others. I mean, uh, you know, I think Katie is someone who wears a lot of hats and has a tremendous amount of responsibility at the Seattle Times. And, uh, you know, she's someone I definitely look to. She is a sort of consummate uh, collaborator who really constantly makes sure that everyone is looped in and is always providing that next update and that next piece. So she's um, incredibly detailed and organized, um, sort of even with her responsibility level. So, you know, it's something I, uh, I try to emulate. Thank you both so much for all of your words and wisdom and your insights on all the, all the work you're doing at Seattle Times. It has been a true pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. 
Really interesting conversation with Katie and Kristen there, and a few things to take away from this one. First up, Philanthropy is a stable and reliable revenue source for Seattle Times, and that directly pays for journalists' salaries and their journalism. As the philanthropic potential becomes greater in the UK, in terms of pulling it off, you want to identify common ground with local donors for impact, set clear boundaries on editorial, start small and scale up, and the one skill to think about is clear communication on how funds are spent, as well as staying on top of the many thank you email you'll need to send. That's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard today, tune in next week as the series continues with a look at connecting with your audience via text message strategies. Here's a sneak peek with San Francisco Chronicle. We want for this to be a platform where as questions come up, if people have specific questions, that can actually point toward coverage. It can perhaps, you know, set us off on an explainer or some um, other, you know, utility articles that, that tell people um, how to do something or what to do. So if, if, if all of the texters are asking questions about funding or about some other element, um, then, then probably lots of people are. And so maybe we want to do another social push on some of the stories we've done. 